because of this phenomenon called elision, these sounds just drop away. And this happens especially with T and D at the mm-hmm. ends of words, and right. it happens with consonant clusters. Wonderful, which is a perfect example of an etymology or an original meaning that's hiding in plain sight because it meant simply full of wonder. Coming up on Word Matters, how words change over time and are chilled drinks ice or iced? I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is a new podcast from Merriam-Webster produced in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. What do you think about words picking up new meanings over time? Is it perhaps awesome, fantastic, terrific? Is it just plain old awful? And can we properly use any of those words without referring to awe, fantasy, or terror? Here's Peter Sokolowski on one of the most dependable sources of language change, semantic drift. Sometimes I talk about what the job of a lexicographer is, and I think the job is revision. A lot of times people get the impression that adding new words to the dictionary is what we do, but actually that's a fraction of what we do. We have to continuously correct the dictionary and bring it up to date. That means following the way language changes, following the way that people use words over time. I mean, just think of words like mouse or cookie, for example, and lurk and browse. These are words that were already in the dictionary 100 years ago, but now, of course, when we hear those words, we immediately think of a new sense, of a different way of using those words. And that's what our job is, is to sort of make sure that we're keeping up with the language. And even the way that people use literally, for example, in a figurative sense, that is an old and established way of using that word, but it has to be explained. It has to be explained in the dictionary, and that's what the dictionary is for. When you think about this, a lot of those words are words that have changed right before our eyes. They've changed recently. But if you look just a little bit past our own lifetimes, there are words like miraculous, or fabulous, or fantastic. And if you think about them literally, miraculous means involving a miracle. Fabulous means about a fable. And fantastic means about fantasy. And yet those are words that have all kind of taken on what you might call a diluted meaning from their original meaning. Dilute like you dilute water, not like you're diluted. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, diluted. Yes. yes. <laughs> Depends on your stance. Sure. That's, that's terrific. <laughs> that's terrific. There as we in, go. As in, I'm, I'm actually quite terrified right now. Because terrific comes from terrify, right? And so an awesome and awful, for yeah, example. That's, that's one of my favorites that people love to complain about awesome taking on this broadened semantic content. And sometimes you will hear people without a shred of irony actually say it's awful. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. Um, because so both they, words meant full of awe, right? Right, and awe itself, the original meaning, at least in, in English six, 700 years ago, awe had far more connotations of dread and fear. When we speak, heard of an awesome presence, it was one that inspired fear and trembling rather than wonderment. And yet these are words that are really part of our everyday vocabulary. So we actually never think of those original senses, those older senses, even though we sometimes do with literally, for example, we often don't when talking about terrific or awesome. Right. Those older uses just aren't present. They're just not present anymore. And yet they're kind of hiding in plain sight, right? Because fabulous obviously has fabled, terrific obviously has terrify. But just to put in a plug for literally, we don't actually think of the original sense, at least not in the the original sense of of or relating to letters, which is in fact the literal 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 literal. (laughs) version. If you really want to be a literal literalist, you go back to letters. Right. That's right. right. 
we don't think of decimate as another one of these. We don't think of December as the 10th month as being the correct way of using that, for example. Speak for yourself. In my household, (laughs) November is still the ninth month. But there's always this tension between etymology or the actual origin of a word and usage, which is the way we simply use the word on a daily basis. And my favorite recent example of this is the word wonderful, which is a perfect example of an etymology or an original meaning that's hiding in plain sight because it meant simply full of wonder, astonishing. We use it today to mean excellent, right? It was a wonderful meal. And what's interesting to me is that that shift happened relatively recently in terms of the thousand-year history of the English language. And I tripped over it. I was reading some of the Thomas Jefferson letters. And it's great to look sometimes as lexicographers go to a corpus of the correspondence of Abraham Lincoln or, in this case, Thomas Jefferson. And there was a sentence where the word jumped out at me and I realized, oh, This word, wonderful, that I'm so familiar with actually means something else. So here's the Jefferson to James Madison in 1823. So they're very elderly at this point. Here's Thomas Jefferson. I should say then that in some of the particulars, Mr. Adams's memory has led him into unquestionable error at the age of 88 and 47 years after the transactions of independence. This is not wonderful. And it's very clear that he means it is not surprising, right? Right. And yet the word wonderful, I think in many contexts, I would just assume it would mean excellent. And I like that quote also because I can also hear it kind of in a modern tone, like, and that is not great. Right, right. That's the thing. That's not so great. I think we do tend to give a lot of margin for this. We say, oh, I I understand what you mean. I I understand what you're saying. And yet this is clearly a different sense of this word. Yep. Yep. In fact, Noah Webster's Dictionary, 1828, so just a couple of years later, he was writing the dictionary when that Jefferson letter was being written. In fact, they did not like each other at all, by the way. Webster was a devoted Federalist. Noah Webster was working on his 1828 dictionary, and his definition of wonderful is adapted to excite wonder or admiration, exciting surprise, strange, astonishing. Wow. And then he cites, as he often does, he cites the Bible. And in his case, it would have been often the King James Version. But he leaves the biblical reference, as he often did with the book, the chapter and the verse, Job 42.3. He doesn't even print the sentence. But I looked it up, and it is, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. And again, we're not talking about excellent things. We're talking about astonishing things. And that made me go to look in the Bible at other uses of the word wonderful, because we usually think it means extremely good. And it's very clear that wonderful is by no means a good thing in biblical terms. So just to give you a couple of examples, here's one sentence from Jeremiah. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. And then another one from Deuteronomy. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. Oof. Wonders about really fear at that point. <laughs> exactly. And the that possibility of destruction yeah. and how far that can go and how far to shock you and awe you. It gets back to awe, right? right. Which is this word like fear. You well, know? and the word wonder has also changed over time, yes. I assume, right? Wonder now is about, we think about a, a child's wonder. Like wonder is, these days it feels like a pleasant speculation, <laughs> right? That is what wonder is. Like, oh, I wonder what it is. Like over there, we're not, you know, I'm concerned. I'm worried about what's going on over there. Sure. And and so from King James, the next place you look, of course, is Shakespeare, right? And sure enough, he uses wonderful, but listen to this from Hamlet. It's a wonderful little example of the different use of wonderful, but one that we might not notice. Hamlet says, my wits diseased, and of course, he's struggling with mental anguish. And he says, oh, wonderful son, 
that can so astonish a mother. And I think you could read that and not particularly know the difference between excellent and astonishing. And yet, of course, it does sort of change the interpretation of the line, obviously. You should understand that in this case, it doesn't mean excellent son. It means astonishing, surprising son. And that is interesting. In Much Ado About Nothing, there's a line, it's Leonato, who's the father of Beatrice. He talks about the change in her attitude because, of course, Beatrice and Benedict are always sparring verbally. And he says, no, nor I either, but most wonderful that she should so dote on Signor Benedict. And the point is, it's so surprising. They had been enemies and then they get married. And so once again, this word, like so many, I think, in Shakespeare that are words that we still use today, but in slightly different meanings, you hear it, you think, that's English. I understand that. I speak English, but actually we don't. And I think of another line from Much Ado About Nothing. The transitivity of verbs have changed over time. So Leonardo also says, we here attend thee. And that means we are waiting for you. It doesn't mean we're waiting on you the mm-hmm. way that it might mean today. And so that these little subtle changes in meaning over 400 years actually do affect the interpretation of Well, of, sure. Of I mean, text. I think over 400 years, but also over, say, 100 years. I mean, one of my, oh, sure. one of my favorite pastimes is looking through usage books of, say, 100 years ago. And the changes in what is considered correct between then and now are quite astonishing. Mm. I mean, what you've just reminded me of is the word obnoxious, which, of course, we always think of today as just being something you would rather not experience or something offensive in some way. But under 100 years ago, there were usage writers who were steadfast in their opposition to this use and held obnoxious really only properly meant exposed to danger. Late 19th and early 20th century, this was still a very common use. And it's changed considerably, of course. Yeah, it has changed because I wouldn't interpret it that way. And now if someone is obnoxious, you are not unhappy to have them exposed to danger. Sure. (laughs) Well, someone just kind of makes you emotionally sick almost just by being in their presence. Of course. And and what's also interesting is sometimes we see uh, when we get a more gradual shift, which can be nonetheless quite confusing. And as lexicographers, we're probably all familiar with the fact that Samuel Johnson and his great dictionaries of the 18th century would occasionally refer to words as ludicrous Mm. in his usage notes. And I think we've all largely interpreted this as just Samuel Johnson's way of saying it's a stupid word or something like that. Ridiculous. Except that ludicrous at that time, there was an overlap between senses of meaning. It did kind of have that meaning, but it also had the original sense, which was very much just playful. We speak of something as being ludic, and we think it's playful. Mm. And ludicrous did have that kind of sportive meaning at the time. So it was a usage note. Right. So it was a usage note, but it was more like jocular than it was Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. dumb. Right. 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 Yeah. So a basic word like ancient. There's a group in Boston called the Ancient and Honorable Artillery or something like that. And it's a group, I think, been formed of veterans of the Revolutionary War and kind of come down like the daughters of the American Revolution or something. And I was speaking with one of the members of this group. And it just occurred to me, I said, you know, because it had been formed as a group of veterans of the Revolutionary War, Ancient and Honorable Artillery, it actually means former. The word ancient means former members of the artillery. Ancient at that time meant former, as it still does in French. So it doesn't mean old, necessarily. It also means former, or it did in the 18th century when the group was founded. I remember learning in French that you had to use ancient in a certain position in French. To mean that. To mean old or to mean former. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you refer to your old teacher or your former teacher. That's right. You could, and you could, (laughs) you could insult someone. You could really insult (laughs) your your former teacher who might still be young. Right, 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 exactly. But anyway, I was thinking Hmm. after reading these from Shakespeare and Thomas Jefferson, that took us to the mid-19th century, I looked up Abraham Lincoln's correspondence, and sure enough, he uses the word wonderful only in one sense, which is the surprising sense, the astonishing sense. So here's an address from Lincoln in 1840s. 
It is not wonderful that they were slow, very slow to acknowledge the truth of such denunciations. And so once again, that's taking us into the middle of the 19th century. And it kind of reminds me of another biblical use, which is the wonderful works of God. And it happens frequently in the Bible. And if you look at them, they are very often very un, they're negative things, and they're not the excellent works of God. They're the astonishing, surprising works of God. And that led me to go back to the very end of the 19th century to maybe find where this transition happened. 1899 is the year in which a book was published called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And sure enough, that wonderful Wizard of Oz was not the excellent Wizard of Oz, but the astonishing Wizard of Oz. And I think most of us probably never give that a thought at all. And it shows that that word has changed meaning only recently. It's kind of an amazing thing. And to think that there's a parallel word in English, wondrous. And we have that word wondrous, which has never had this shift, which it continues to mean as it has always, evocative of wonder. That evokes wonder. It seems like in the 20th century, wonderful was probably used in a lot of advertising Mm. and marketing for things that we wanted to be impressed by. And so you talked about Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I think of the wonderful world of Disney. Oh, there we go. Which, you know, has a double sense. Disney was definitely about exciting wonder in children, Mm -hmm. but it's also probably saying... The show's great. Yeah. You're going to watch this. It's going to be awesome. All it takes is an ambiguous context for occurring often enough for a yep. word to really shift in its meaning. Absolutely. It's an, an interesting thing to think that so many things, words like this, can be just hiding in plain sight. And even if you are encountering such a word in relatively recent writings from 100, 150 years ago, it's possible to actually completely misunderstand the intent of the author in a language that we speak and use every day. Right. Amazing. Just need some merchants of ambiguity, a.k.a. lexicographers. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after this break to sip some tea of the iced, or is it ice, variety. Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the definition and history of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Bite. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. 
Welcome back to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. All of this talking is making me thirsty. I think I could use a nice glass of iced tea. Or can I call it ice tea? That is the central conundrum at the heart of our next discussion, in which I take a look at how this kind of language change has happened before, how it is currently being used, and where it might go in the future. If I pour a big glass of brewed concoction over ice, it is iced tea or iced tea? Ooh, that's a tough one. Oh, it's not. Are those our I only think two I've choices? Heard, those are your only choices, yeah. There's I, no coffee in here. It's just, it's just... I'm pretty sure I've heard both, but my inclination would be to go with iced tea. Me too. Mm-hmm. I'll go with iced Okay. Yeah. Well, you're Americans, so that Mm -hmm. makes good sense. I would also, in writing, I would go with iced tea. But if we're having a conversation and we're just talking, none of us is likely to be able to determine which one we're saying. We actually all, in running conversation, would say something that sounds exactly like iced tea. Sure. We all say iced tea. This is a, a linguistic phenomenon that is undeniable. No matter how you spell it, nobody really says iced tea tea Mm -hmm. in conversation. We all say iced tea because of this phenomenon called elision. These sounds just drop away. And this happens especially with T and D at the Mm -hmm. ends of words, and it happens with consonant clusters. I just think it's an interesting phenomenon, and sometimes our spelling reflects it, and sometimes it does not. We do enter ice tea in our unabridged dictionary. That's funny. That's even saying the word unabridged Dictionary. Mm, I have to pause, uh, or I'll say unabridged yeah. dictionary. dictionary. Right, that's an elision. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely an elision. So we cover ice tea, but our main definition is at iced tea, and I think this is interesting. Now, I remember there being kind of a stir about this when I was a kid. People objecting. Maybe it was just in my family. My family was weird. People objected hmm. to ice tea, and we were all very no, no, no. It's mm. iced tea. It's iced tea. You have to write down iced. Even though the D in iced is really silent. It's like boxed set, which is now clearly box set for everyone. But I still think of them as boxed sets. But you really can't say it without seeming kind of hyper vigilant about your pronunciation. Yeah, well, speaking of hypervigilant, back in, I think, 1880, one of uh, the 19th century's most splenetic language writers, Richard Grant White, had an entry in which he was really unhappy about people saying ice cream oh. rather than iced cream iced and ice cream. water for iced water. He says it was due to mere carelessness and enunciation, <laughs> which is actually one of his gentler kind of. But responses. it also gives us a clue about sort of what the origin of the phenomenon is iced cream. It sort of explains it cream itself. Cream had yeah. ice or was frozen in some way at yeah. one point had something done to it. Because now we think of it as, as its own thing. But That's it right. actually, this kind of reveals a little bit more like boxed set does too. It's a set that was put into a, to a box. Right. That's right. Well, and there's a semantic understanding there also. If you call it a boxed set, you think of it as a, as a set that has been put in a box. And then could also be that there's a kind of reinterpretation of what it means. Not sure. only is it easier to say, is it more natural to say, is it not only is it exactly what it sounds like somebody is saying when they say boxed set, but a listener might also think of it as a set that comes in a box. And so sure. box right. set not only sounds right, but it also semantically just makes sense. And sure. box set without the ED could be linguistically interpreted, maybe it's a stretch, as a set of boxes. I think people would see the unit box set and go to the meaning we know immediately. But if you didn't know that such a thing existed, 
use some other noun in front of set and thought a wrench set, right? A wrench set yeah. would be a set of wrenches. Yeah. A box set yeah. could be a set of boxes. Well, sure. But Evan, I appreciate that you brought up Richard Grant White. Of course, you know Richard Grant White. He bemoaned this ice water and iced tea thing. That was in 1871. Ooh. But by 1906, Frank Vizatelli wrote his A Desk Book of Errors in English. And he wrote of both ice water and ice cream that both are so firmly established that it is doubtful if they will ever be changed. Hmm. Huh. 35 years later. Well, that's interesting because he went on to become the editor-in-chief of Funk and Wagnall's Dictionary. Oh. And so he was in some ways a major part of early 20th century lexicography. Sure. He was not one of the more forgiving usage writers of the early 20th mm-hmm. century. Nobody was quite as unreasonable as Richard Grant White, who would say things like real estate is a barbarism upon our language. He really hated all kinds of things without much reason. But Vizzatelli was better, I think, or more reasonable, but I wouldn't say he was a forgiving authority on the English language. So the fact that he's accepted, it means it really must have come far. I think it had come far. And I feel like there's also something about the phenomenon that is ice cream. If we really have to go to the trouble to say iced cream or try to, if we have to really think of it as being that much work, it just takes some pleasure away from this thing that is really, I think, one of the best substances in the world. Right. It it kind of affects its identity when you need to emphasize Mm. its two-word nature. You kind of want it to have its own lexical identity. Well, it just shouldn't be that hard to say. Well, iced cream sort of sounds like the adjective and the ingredient, whereas you want an ice cream, now become an actual countable dessert. That's something you can just pick up. And we don't think about how it's made anymore. And people do not make ice cream at home very often anymore, where you have to have the barrel and the the ice ice in it and the salt. You have to convince a bunch of small children that this is an actual (laughs) fun thing to do for the next three or four hours. (laughs) And it's worth the result that they get. But this distinction does probably still exist with iced tea, right? Because we do have Mm. iced tea that we make at home. You Mm -hmm. brew it. You can pour it over ice cubes. The idea of being iced is part of how it's made. And yet we also have this thing you can see marketed and sold in stores. It's bottled. It's a brewed tea. Mm-hmm. It was chilled at some point in its production. You can pour it in a glass of ice and have yeah. it call it iced tea, but it's still iced tea even without that. A bottle of Snapple is still called iced tea. Mm-hmm. I would venture to guess that there are very few bottles of iced tea that you buy in the grocery store that have actually ever touched ice. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Like they mm-hmm. probably not. The tea giant Lipton has a U.S. website and a U.K. website. And on their U.S. website, they refer to it as iced tea. And on their Mm, U.K. website, they refer to it as ice tea. So they have different style. They do. And that styling backs what's in the Nexus database of thousands and thousands of publications. In British English, it's iced tea. In American English, it is iced tea. This is just in writing, of course. We all say it mostly the same except for our British and American accents. But the other twist to this is that in the U.K., they have iced water And we have ice water. (laughs) I would venture to guess that this is because their iced water is more often accompanied with ice. And that is a more unusual thing. My understanding, I have never lived there. Cold beer, cold water, cold cokes. They don't put ice in their drinks as often as we do here. I see. And so for the water to be iced, you expect to actually see the ice there. Meanwhile, in American English... Our ice water probably has ice in it, but so does all the other stuff. So it's like a commodity versus a process or something. There are two kind of slightly different semantic things going on. But I would suggest also there's another one of these, which is old-fashioned. I see so often that the ED is dropped from that, like, banner in a town center that'll say, hey, old-fashioned weekend, 
or something. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what I would say because right. you're referring to clothing. But both of those date to the late 16th century. Old fashioned and old fashioned are approximately the same no old kidding. as yeah. far as the Oxford English Dictionary is concerned anyway. Those two words are basically the same age. Their first citations of each are both from, I think it's like 1592 and 1596. Fascinating. So old-fashioned and old-fashioned are approximately the same age, but old-fashioned has mostly faded away in print. Interesting. So people are paying attention, or editors, professional editors are paying attention. Is this, again, an instance of semantics coming in and having an impact? Is this about a way of analyzing the words? If something is old-fashioned, is the emphasis on how it was made, that it was mm. fashioned in an old way, in a way that people used to fashion things? And is old-fashioned of a fashion that is outdated? Right. The old manner. I thinking, but yeah. I was thinking an old-fashioned Christmas is clearly Christmas in the old manner, and yet I'm very comfortable using old-fashioned in that one. In other words, this is ambiguous. This is a problem. I can easily see that old-fashioned Christmas, Christmas in the older manner, is valid and means exactly what I intend, but I would say old-fashioned Christmas. They all kind of require some analysis, don't they? Well, there may be a pull from people who are aware of the D tending to drop out of things in a term like sure. old-fashioned. We may think, oh, I know that this is the more sanctioned way of saying this, mm -hmm, so I'm going mm -hmm. to keep the ED. I don't know. Are there others like this? I mean, I, mean, I remember saying, referring to an old-fashioned car, and it would be a car that had been around for a long time. So I guess it was fashioned a long time ago, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. What does it really mean? I, but it's also in a fashion. It's in the style old. of an old. It yeah. Is a, if, suppose if you retro made a custom car that was meant to look like an old Edsel or something, sure. then I might be inclined to call that an old fashion car. Interesting. Because it wasn't fashioned a long time ago. It was yeah. fashioned today. In the manner of. In the manner yeah, yeah, of yeah, a car yeah, yeah. that existed a long time ago. I never gave this so much thought. Before. Well, and I, I, I don't think either. that these words really function very differently in real. No, no I don't in, think no. they do. Real, and you don't think about world. it. Yeah. There's actually even earlier citation in early English books online. The earliest use they have of either one is old-fashioned, which is mm. older than old-fashioned. No this is a book from 1533, which Whoa. talks about two ancient knights with old-fashioned hats, ah. um, which is, I think, the earliest advertising use of either one. It is early 16th century, which is That's quite surprising. A bit of, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some other examples of this dropping D. How do you guys feel about skimmed milk? Have mm. you ever called it skimmed? I've never milk? called it skimmed milk. No. no. I feel like I've only no. known the term skim milk mm. for my mm. whole life. Waxed paper and wax paper. Mm -hmm. I feel like both of those are familiar. Those I've to seen me. both of. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But it's the same phenomenon. The it's... paper had to be waxed at some point. It had to be covered with wax at some point. So, yeah, the action is sort of inherent in the object. It is. And also, the orthography is over time reflecting pronunciation. Right. And the pronunciation is really subject to just the limitations of our articulatory functions. Mm -hmm. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send us an email at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.